Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode of the Energy Geoscience MRCI podcast. My name is Dr. Rochelle Kernan, and today I have a very special guest, Tim Dixon, who is currently the head of the IEA GHG, which stands for the International Energy Agency Greenhouse Gas R&D Program. Hi, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you, Rochelle. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for meeting with me. It's an honor to be connected with you, and I'm really looking forward to asking you some questions. Could you just take us through your uh, career path? So maybe start with where you went to school and what degrees you decided to pursue, and then just walk us through uh, your career and how you ended up being uh, the director of the IEAGHG today. So um, I originally did a, a first degree in applied physics, mm-hmm. um, and that's quite a nice degree, lots of engineering aspects to it. Uh, the clues in the name, I guess, with it being applied. And that was at the University of Hull in the UK. Um, and then I worked in a national, the UK's national lab, sort of like the equivalent of um, NETL in the US, or Patel maybe. Yeah. Um, and I worked in non-destructive testing there. And I wanted to move into the environment area. Uh, so I did an MBA. Um, and I did that part-time through Oxford Brookes University. And that was a very good exercise. Over three years part-time, uh, covering, as you as you might know, many, many topics in mm-hmm. rapid succession and in quite a lot of detail, uh, which gives you quite a good training for, for a range of careers, I think. Um, and through that, I very quickly moved into the energy and environment area which is what I wanted to do, and and the very early world of carbon trading mm-hmm. was just starting off then um, in the mid-1990s. Um, so with that, I got into, I, I was already in AEA technology uh, at Harwell in the UK, and I got into the Energy Technology Support Unit, ETSU, um, working on clean coal technologies, renewable energy, and technology transfer issues mm-hmm. uh, and that was just a great place that was running the UK government's programs in renewables energy efficiency and clean coal technologies great place to work then in the mid-1990s mm-hmm. um, and then carbon capture and storage hadn't been thought of at that point but I got seconded then into UK government in 2002 for six weeks just as carbon capture and storage was taking off or starting Mm-hmm. And I, I got seconded for six weeks and I ended up staying for six years in UK <laughs> government doing all the early stuff on carbon capture and storage. And I picked up the, because I had the MBA, which means you can pick, pick up a range of topics quite quickly. Sure. I picked up the legal and regulatory and became the sort of UK government's lead on, on developing the international legal and regulatory aspects for carbon capture and storage. And then um, I don't know whether your audience has been interested in this, but AEA technology got privatised during that period, uh, and I'd worked enough both with the Department of Trade and Industry, which is the Department of Energy in the UK, but also with the Department of Environment, DEFRA, to realise and to work with all the climate scientists 
and realised how serious an issue climate change was. So I didn't want to go back to a privatised AEA doing that for profit. Um, I got nice job offers from two oil companies that, that would have doubled my salary as well. But I decided to go for the not-for-profit research area and went into IEA GHG, mm-hmm. which is where uh, I am still now. So I moved into IEA GHG in 2008 and I, so that we can work on things because they need to be worked on and we don't have to worry so much about getting funded specifically to do um, specific jobs and tasks and, and challenges. So that's basically my career route to IHHG. And then I've, whilst there, I've been seconded to the Global CCS Institute. And that started up in Australia. So I did one week a month with them for a year or so, um, working in the climate change UNFCCC space, helping get them going there. Um, and uh, I also have an honorary research scientist position with the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology, um, working on offshore CTS, and I'm an honorary lecturer at University of Edinburgh, um, uh, the Department of Geosciences there. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's what I do. And then I became the head of IAGHG in 2019 and a director in 2021. So that's how I got to where I am now. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing uh, career background. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. Um, it's really fascinating and inspiring. So uh, as the general manager, the director for the IEAGHG, could you just tell us uh, the history of the name or the acronym? And then also, what are the main goals of this program? Yeah. So IAGHG was set up by the International Energy Agency in 1991. It has about 38 of these technology collaboration programs. And we we, we exist separately to the IEA. um, And they're based in Paris. And they work primarily in the policy space. And we're a research program funded by our 37 member countries and companies. And our primary area has been carbon capture and storage. So whilst we have greenhouse gas in our name, the main greenhouse gas causing climate change is carbon dioxide. And that's been the main focus since the beginning. So we've been operating for some 32, 31, 32 years now. Um, We run the main international conference on CCS. That's the GHGT series. Mm -hmm. The last one of which was in Lyon in October beyond France in October last year. Um, And the next one is going to be in Calgary in October 2024. And we fund research, we fund studies um, on all aspects of CCS um, and moving into not just the technology and techno-economic assessments, but also into the deployment topics as well. So we've published over 350 reports on all aspects of CCS, as well as running the conference, as well as also running networks of experts on different aspects of CCS. Uh, For example, on monitoring of storage, on risk assessment of storage, on costs, on high temperature solid looping, 
Uh, one of our networks became a conference, the Post-Combustion Capture Conference. Um, and we hold these network workshops regularly as well as the conferences. And this year is a particularly busy year because our conferences are every two years. So the years in between we fill up, plus there's a little bit of a backlog from COVID. So we just last week had our risk, risk management network meeting in uh, Edinburgh. Uh, our monitoring network meeting will be in Louisiana in in uh, next month. Um, and our cost network meeting was in the Netherlands in April. Our high temperature solid looping network meeting was in Italy uh, in February. And these are really meetings of experts where we discuss the latest developments and experiences in the areas and share experiences and learnings and draw out new conclusions. And we write those up and report those as well. And we also run the main international summer school on CCS. Now, in, this will be its 15th year, and that's next week being hosted by the International CCS Knowledge Centre in Regina, Canada. Last year, it was hosted in Indonesia by ITB, and we get international students, 40 to 60 students each year, who are very oversubscribed with this. The demand, the interest continues to grow in CCS. Um, so we're very pleased to, to run those uh, as well. And then that's the sort of more technical aspects of our programme, our technical programme. But we're also very active in making sure that these technical outputs get used in the relevant policy and regulatory environments as well. Mm -hmm. So we're very active in the UNFCCC. We've organised the main CCS side event, official side event for the last seven or so years. That's a very big audience at the Climate Change Conferences, the COPs. We're the only CCS organisation in the room in the London Protocol, the International Marine Treaty, that enables CCS to happen. Uh, we're active in ISO. Uh, IPCC would provide expert reviewers to and various things like that. So we're quite active in getting our work out there uh, as well as providing it to our members. And our members choose what we fund. They choose our technical programme. They choose the studies that we fund and the reports that we uh, produce. So that's what we do um, in a nutshell. And we've been doing that for uh, 30, 31 years. That's incredible. Thank you so much for, for sharing all that information about the programme. Moving on, how has uh, CCS technology transformed over your career the last 30 years? Could you comment on like maybe the last 10 years or even since COVID? And have you seen um, exponential growth at any stage? Thanks, uh, Rochelle. That's that's quite a question. Yeah. And I laughed at <laughs> being sorry because it's CCS has had its ups and downs in, yeah. in its um, history. And so um, I think when I was in the UK government, CCS was a really new concept. Um, and two things happened that really started getting it moving. The first was the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that does, provides a science basis into the UNFCCC. United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the agreement 197 countries on climate change. The IPCC did a special report on carbon capture and storage, CCS, that was published in 2005. And my predecessors at IEA GHG were very instrumental in getting them to 
commission and do that report. And then we're authors of the different chapters and lead authors, etc. in that report. And what that IPCC special report on CCS did was assess the science and the understanding and concluded this is a technology that can mitigate CO2 at large scale and can be done safely. And in effect, is a technology that should be pursued by the UNFCCC and all countries in the world. So that was a really significant report based upon peer review inputs, impartial, scientifically based assessment that told the world, particularly the policy world, this is an important technology. Mm -hmm. Then almost at the same time, uh, the UK government had the presidency of the G8, as it was then, uh, G7 now, because they kicked Russia out, but G8 then. And to the credit of the UK government, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they said, right, what's the biggest thing we can do on climate change? And the Department of Environment in the UK then said, well, there is this new technology. We've just got this IPCC report out. This looks like a big thing. And so they made, they put it onto the G8 political horizon radar for the first time in 2005 under the UK presidency. And I was fortunate to be in the UK government at the time and involved on behalf of the Department of Trade and Industry with getting these five CCS initiatives worked up, agreed with all the different countries in the G8, and then formally agreed through the G8 energy ministers and formally into the communique at the end. So that was very interesting, explaining to these countries what we meant by these different things, uh, including what Capture Ready meant. And there was a key role for IHHG then in defining what Capture Ready meant for power plants. Um, little did I know then that I'd end up in IHHG in the future. So that got CCS moving quite quickly. Uh -huh. And at the same time, there was a, a, a key report from Lord Nick Stern on the economic aspects of climate change and where he quantified the impacts of climate change in economic terms. And within that report, he said, CCS is a really important technology. It's going to cost a fraction of what the costs of climate change are going to be, and it should be pursued. So all of that started CCS moving on an exponential curve, to, to use your term. Subsequent G8s, G20s picked this up as well. I think it was the Japanese uh, G20, oh no, the Japanese G8, sorry, in 2008, that said we need 20 projects by 2010. The EU picked up a similar sort of ambition. Um, and so up to about 2010, there was a rapid acceleration in CCS. And then it plateaued and slowed and, and, and almost paused, really, uh -huh. uh, for the next decade. Um, and I still don't know exactly a single reason for that. Um, thinking that you might ask me that question. Um, but what we're seeing now is another acceleration uh, of interest in CCS. I think as the climate science is updated every six or seven years by the IPCC, the realisation that we're really not reducing CO2 emissions yeah. um, enough, that we're heading towards you know, a bad place in terms of climate change impacts, 
and we need to be doing more and more and more and sooner and sooner. So carbon capture and storage is, is come back in as in because it plays an important role uh, in mitigating the CO2 emissions from hard to abate sectors like cement, iron and steel, chemical industry, fertilizer industry, which you know we need for feeding the world, um, and then not just for the Paris side, which is where it was first considered in its main application in decarbonizing uh, coal and gas power plants. And so that sort of recent um, uh, realization has stimulated interest again. That, and as the IEA says, you know, we can't achieve net zero without CCS. And every report that the IEA produces each year, you know, emphasizes the, the critical role of it. And so it's sinking in again around the world that um, along with all the other technologies, low carbon technologies, it's really necessary. So, um, yeah, it's had, two, it's had two periods of growth, the sort of 2005 to 2010, mm-hmm. and then non, and then in the last few years, last three years. Yeah. And I think what's really stimulated it, as well as the science need, science-based need for it, um, is the US administration changing and the Biden administration coming in, um, seeing both the benefits and, and the Fatih Baron, the di- executive director of the International Energy Agency, pointed this out early on in COVID, that whilst COVID paused the world's economy, so to speak, and it actually reduced the two emissions as everyone stopped traveling, and the world was going to need an economic boost to recover afterwards. And, uh, Dr. Fatih Barron said this economic boost should include investment in low-carbon energy future, mm-hmm. including technologies that, uh, such as CCS. Um, it's not really been picked up that much in that way, except for the US administration through the Inflation Reduction Act in particular and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill um, that is putting money into all the low-carbon energy tech that has stimulated very uh, impressive growth by companies in interest in developing CCS projects in the US. And that's drawing investment over from Europe and the UK. Um, and so it's quite interesting, actually. So they announced it only last August, the Inflation Reduction Act, with its 45Q announcement. And the immediate reaction of the European Union was, that's not fair, because uh, you're providing investment away from Europe in these low-carbon uh, things such as uh, electric vehicles and batteries and, and CCS. But then the response from the European Union was to up its game in incentives as well. Sure. And so what we have in Europe is the net uh, NZIA, Net Zero Industry Act, that's proposed to help stimulate investment in Europe. And the UK government in March announced uh, the largest amount of money yet for CCS, that's 20 billion for the UK, plus the projects. So the Inflation Reduction Act had a very good impact outside of the US uh, boundaries uh, in that sense. And that's helping to drive up interest in CCS again now. And and you, you see that simply not just knowing all the projects that are being developed, there's an increasing number in Europe as well, 
with the physical attendance at conferences like ours. For the first time ever, we reached our limits in Lyon, physical capacity limits at our conference, and we had to close registration at 1,200 people. Uh, so we expect the next one to be even larger, and, and we see that in other people's conferences as well. The one two weeks ago in Trondheim, the TCCS trail conference, uh, reached 600 people attending it, and that's the most they've ever had. Mm -hmm. So CCS is definitely uh, on an exponential curve upwards again. Uh, and I just hope this one is sustained for longer because we really do need this technology to be built. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I hope it's, it is sustained as well, along with all the other um, clean energy technologies. Specifically talking about the technologies related to CCS, so whether it's a technical geological understanding or monitoring geophysics, whatever it may be, what would you say has been the most effective revolutionary breakthrough to actually keep that carbon in place in the ground? It's, it's not like other low carbon technologies where there's been a sudden breakthrough. Mm -hmm. I think because we've had the oil and gas industry extracting and re-injecting gases and fluids into the subsurface for many decades, we've actually had the basic knowledge of the CO2 geological storage aspects for some time. Um, so it's been more of an evolution uh -huh. uh, rather than a revolution in technology development. Um, and the same similar technologies that have been used for oil and gas exploration have been adapted for CO2 storage because what you're trying to do with CO2 storage is keep it in the ground and show it being kept in the ground. Yeah. And the regulations require you to do that. And we've got the monitoring techniques. And what we've done is refine those further to, in effect, fine tune them um, uh, for doing this, this uh, purpose. I guess things have come along since as well, like fiber optics. And, and distributed acoustic sensing using fiber optics is quite quite an advancement um, that can be applied on on projects and that's on the storage side obviously you've got to capture the co2 first and there is the same thing there's been smaller levels of capture of co2 for many decades and what's been required is the scale up of those so yes there's some sources of co2 are are relatively pure already and they're straightforward such as from ethyl ethanol uh, plant and fertilizer plant but where you've got more dilute flue gases such as from power stations like coal and gas and cement plant those post-combustion capture technologies based upon amines have evolved and what the biggest step really was just building them up at scale such as the uh, sas powers boundary dam project and the uh, petronova um, also in in, uh, in in North America, that one in the US. So they're sort of incremental advancements rather than technology revolutions uh, in that sense. But what what the, the main thing that happens is you, I think you need to build at scale and you get the learnings that are most useful then mm -hmm. from those large-scale demonstration projects. So in terms of the future of CCS, do you have any advice for um, either researchers or people who are 
interested on uh, doing this for their job or perhaps entrepreneurs. Do you have any advice for them on the next big breakthrough, whether it's technology related or focused on policy, or I guess, how do you see this going forward? Yeah, so, I mean, what I see happening now is this area evolving into carbon dioxide removal. Mm -hmm. That means removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And this was always a sort of concept that was known about, particularly through bioenergy with CCS, because plants absorb CO2 through photosynthesis. And if you use them in an energy conversion process and then capture the CO2 and inject it underground, then you've removed it from the atmosphere through a negative emission process. But because we, the human race, are not reducing emissions enough, this hypothetical use of this of CO2 geological storage is, is coming to the forefront now and the IPCC is saying that we need to do some negative uh, emission technologies deployment or carbon dioxide removal, CDR, uh, in all their scenarios if we're going to achieve limiting global climate change to 1.5 degrees mm-hmm. or and or net zero by 2050. And the, the IEA is saying the same as well. So what we're seeing is not just the biomass-based removals, but engineered removals through direct air capture, through uh, effectively um, scrubbing the air of CO2. Of course, that's more, much more dilute than flue gases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's a really strong interest, serious interest in this direct air capture with CO2 geological storage, DAX as it's known. And there's a lot of money going into that. And there were some benefits in it. It doesn't need to be tied to any particular location of a CO2 source. It can be based at where the geology is. So you could save on transport costs and issues. And some of the companies, particularly in the US, uh, particularly Occidental, are investing in large-scale plant being built, uh, also in Iceland, uh, doing the same there as well. And it's interesting that 20 years ago, this was blue skies thinking, and now people are building them for real because we've not reduced emissions enough and we need to do this. Um, and we'll need to do this by 2050 at an industrial scale. So there's, if I was an entrepreneur, I'd, I'd, um, well, I'd be encouraging entrepreneurs to look at this area in particular, um, as well as the other capture technologies to go onto existing plants, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. And that's there's an interesting aspect, because one of the things I do um, uh, try and assist with and encourage is for developing countries to consider this CCS technology in general, uh, for their emissions reductions. And as you know, CCS, you know, you've got the capture part, transport and storage. So technology, IPR and technology transfer tends to be more around the capture side. The storage is the country's own geology. Um, so it's their own na- national, natural resource uh, for them to use in that sense. 
So investment in into the geological storage side is probably somewhere less in less need of investment for entrepreneurs and venture capital in that sense. But in technology development for direct air capture and, and and associated capture technologies on the capture side uh, would be worth doing. And then for investors in general, um, this is a way of decarbonizing the fossil fuel industry, with which has big investments in it. So it future proofs that industry. So I was, I, we've done a report on unvulnerable carbon, pointing out this fact that CCS de-risks all the investments in in fossil fuels. Um, so I would draw any of your listeners who are in that area their attention to that aspect as well. It de-risks their their fossil fuel resources that are yet to be used. Um, so for researchers, um, and the advice for researchers would be to look at the needs in the climate sense and to get your get the technologies into the policy space in the same way that we managed to do with CCS in a broad sense in the mid-2000s with the G8 and everything else since. Um, getting it into the policy awareness uh, is very important. Um, and the IPCC is a good route for doing that because it's impartial, it's science and evidence-based. Uh, so that means researchers get your work published in peer-reviewed literature, get it taken up, get it noticed, get it into the IPCC and get it noticed in the policy world. And to all the younger listeners uh, to this podcast, this industry is going to need a lot of human resource. Uh, there's going to be great careers in this. Uh, we see people in the oil and gas industry seeking to repurpose themselves because um, they've got relevant expertise that needs to be there more, more fine-tuned for the CO2 storage aspects. But it applies across all the engineering disciplines as well. Uh, so, uh, and this is the same applies to other low-carbon technologies. But I think, particularly with CCS growing as it is. Uh, we need a lot of people, so I would encourage people to look at making careers in this area and looking at the, the courses that are available and, and moving into this. And if you want to make a difference in your career, get in at an early stage on something like CCS. Mm. Oh, that's that's really great and encouraging. Thank you so much for that. And yes, please keep in touch. And we greatly appreciate your time, Tim. Okay, Rochelle, thank you very much.